How about that? There we go. Let's try it again. Good morning. Happy New Year. It was so much fun the first time. Feels like we just did that last year. It's interesting. Yesterday, uh, when I got up, I had been working on this sermon for several weeks. This is about the, the fourth iteration of it. Uh, that's what happens when I have too much time to prepare. Uh, I told my wife uh, I had gone to bed Friday. My eyes were bleeding and I couldn't focus on anything anymore. I said, I expect to have this done by 12. And I did. 12 p.m. last night or 12 a.m. this morning, however way you want to look at it. But apparently, that was a pretty big deal because just as I finished it, my wife came in with two glasses of apple cider and the neighbors started celebrating with me. <laughs> they were shooting off fireworks and guns. And I thought, man, Lord, this is a really important sermon. <laughs> So I hope you're blessed by it. My neighbors were, and they haven't even heard it. (laughs) Happy New Year. Blessings in Christ for this new year. Murfreesboro is a, a small town in southwest Arkansas. It's a small town you've probably never heard of. And with a population of just over 1,600 and having only two schools, elementary and high school, high school running from 7th through 12th, and nearly as many poultry farms as it has churches, that's understandable. Murfreesboro isn't for everybody. And yet every year, all year, large numbers of people flock to Murfreesboro. Now, with a couple of outstanding rivers and a really nice lake offering almost any outdoor activity you could possibly desire, that might not be surprising. Except that nobody's going to Murfreesboro for any of those things. Most people go to Murfreesboro for something they can't find anywhere else on earth. Murfreesboro is home to Crater of Diamonds State Park. It's the only diamond-bearing site on the planet where the public can go and hunt for diamonds and keep everything they find regardless of its value. And there have been some pretty impressive diamonds found in Crater of Diamonds State Park. What's really interesting is that many of those diamonds, including some of the larger ones, have been found just by people walking through the park, looking down. But surely, more diamonds, many more diamonds, could be found by digging deeper. So that's true of our text today. We could find more treasure within the depths of our text than we have time to unearth this morning. Originally, I thought about shortening this sermon, maybe just to verses 3 and 4 or maybe 3 through 6. But given our text, that's a bit of a challenge. You see, this text didn't begin as 11 verses. This text began as a single 202-word sentence. And you think I'm (laughs) long-winded. This text is the longest sentence in all of your Bibles. So because it was originally one thought, I hesitated to reduce it down. Were I preaching through Ephesians expositionally and had many weeks to to follow up with it, I, I would probably preach through it maybe even at a verse at a time. But that just didn't seem appropriate given that we've got today. And like I said, it was composed originally as a single thought. Our text is also the key phrase for everything to follow in Ephesians. It's focused on God's blessings in Christ. Yet still, 
even on the surface of this text, even on the surfaces of these verses, we are going to find great treasure. Let's begin our search with prayer. Would you please bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, we, we thank you for this day, this new year, Lord. <clears throat> I specifically ask now, Lord God, for your blessings upon your people. Would you grow your church both deep and wide through 2017? And would you bless more of us, Lord God, with the, the Spirit of Christ? Father, I don't take my place here at this podium today that I might entertain or impress, but that I might extol the virtues of your word, that I might share your truths. And so, Father, in that regard, I pray that you would bless me, that you would give me clarity and boldness of speech. And, Father, I pray that you would bless those hearing today with understanding and wisdom. And that together, Lord God, we might at the end of the day glorify you in our praise in Christ. Amen. We're going to begin where Paul begins. That seems like a right place. By the way, if, if you didn't hear, uh, this is uh, on page 63 or 633, excuse me, of the Bibles that are under the chairs. Uh, if you're not here today with a Bible of your own, uh, please feel free to use one of those. And if you're not uh, the owner of a Bible, please feel free to take that with you. You want to make sure that uh, everyone leaves here with a Bible that didn't come in having a Bible. Verse 3, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul opens our text today with an expression of praise, walking through a progression of ideas built around the word bless. Now right away we want to be careful that we don't misunderstand and that we avoid the confusion so often created when we view men blessing God in the same way we view God's blessing of men. These aren't just two lanes going in opposite directions of a highway. When Paul says, blessed be God, he isn't hoping that God will receive a blessing. Rather, he's making an emphatic declaration that God is blessed. He's saying with divine understanding that God is within the triune fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally blessed. God is, has been, and always will be eternally blessed by, in, and through Himself. When men bless God, however, we are rightly acknowledging Him as God, praising and exalting Him for who He is, we can't offer God any gift of blessing, benefit, or increase. To imagine that we can means we imagine God as being in some way incomplete. That He is lacking something and that He is lacking something which we can provide. To believe that is to believe ourselves above God, to put ourselves in the place of God. But if your God is in any way lacking, or if your God can in any way be added to, your God isn't God. 
at all. Psalm 50 verse 12 says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and the fullness, its fullness are mine. We've got nothing to bring to the table. We only sit at the table and wait for God's provisions. Now men, on the other hand, we are incomplete. We are lacking. We are needful. We are wholly dependent on God. So it's good news that when God blesses us, benefit is added to us. Acts 17, 24 through 25 reminds us of this important distinction, making clear that while God does not need us, we are desperately needful of God. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The benefits our texts speak of today are spiritual benefits. Described as every spiritual blessing, they are communicated to us through the operation of the Holy Spirit, gifting believers all that has been accomplished by God for them in Christ. You're going to see that phrase, in Christ, a lot today. And God's ultimate blessing is that new life that comes through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. While He also presents us with many material blessings, and we should enjoy them from day to day as God provides, those blessings are temporary. This world is temporary. These lives we live right now in the flesh are temporary. But the spiritual blessings available to us in Christ are ours both now and to the end of eternity. As Colossians 2, 13 through 15 declares, our every blessing in Christ is forever secured for us in the heavenly places. We're going to see that here too. Where Christ reigns eternally victorious over those evil forces described in Ephesians 6.12. And Colossians also reminds us that there was a great cost paid in purchasing these blessings. Here's how it reads. And you who were dead in your trespasses... And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Then he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, in Christ. These heavenly realms spoken of here are the realms of invisible reality. Though we can't see or touch these realities, they are no less real. And right now, these invisible realities work an important and vital role in each believer's life. As Paul reflects in 2 Corinthians 4.18, 
We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's bring verse 4 in, reading verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Take notice here that in tracing every spiritual blessing from verse 3 to its ultimate source, the sovereign will of God, Paul denies us any option of believing that we were chosen due to some inherent goodness in us, some work that we've done, or some decision we made. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And of these words from verse 4, He chose us, If those aren't persuasive enough for you, John 15, 16 removes all doubt. John 15, 16 says, You did not choose me. I chose you. End of story. (laughs) If you don't like that, Argue with the author. (laughs) And he chose us in him, Christ. And this is where it gets good. Before the foundation of the world. Think about that. Think about the implications of that. Think about what that says of God's love for you, believer. Every believer here today, every Christian who has ever lived or ever will live, was chosen. By God, in Christ, before God ever said, let there be anything. One writer put it this way, the life of Christians depends on a love that never began as well as a love that will never end. I'm a country western fan and I really like George Strait. He's one of my favorites. And George Strait sings a song with the line, Daddies don't just love their children every now and then. It's a love without end. Amen. As sweet And sentimental as that is, and it is, and it's true, God's love for His children is so much sweeter. God's love for His children is not only a love without end, amen, it's a love without beginning, hallelujah. There was never, 
in all of eternity. Not a single solitary moment that God did not already and fully love you in Christ, having as the purpose of His will your redemption through Jesus. That's good news. That's big news. But God's purpose wasn't just to love us into salvation. He also means and purposes for our lives to have purpose. And God's purpose is here expressed both positively and negatively. Positively, God purposes His people to be a holy people. Negatively, God purposes His people to be a blameless people. The word here in the Greek for holy is hagios. And it means to be set apart for God, divinely molded into His image in order to reflect His purity before the world. We are image bearers of Christ. Hagios, or holy, is related Closely to the words sanctify and sanctification. You're familiar with those. They mean to grow in grace, to grow in holiness. Romans 3, 21 through 22 and 2 Corinthians 5, 21 conspire to assure believers that they're benefactors of that great exchange. That great exchange, the imputation of our sin and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. By that I mean that when Christ went to the cross, our sin was imputed or laid upon Him. He bore the burden and the cost, and the wrath of our sin. But in so doing, He clothed and adorned us with His own righteousness. So that when God sees us, when God sees me, He doesn't see all that I remember about me. He doesn't see all that I've done. Anymore, he sees the sinless nature of his own son. Yet, even so, God also calls me and he calls you and he calls his people to live lives of personal righteousness as well. Now, I'm not talking about living the life of a moralist, living by a a set of ethical rules, do's and don'ts. Christians don't need a list. Christians need Jesus. But in that relationship with Jesus... In our desire to express love, obedience, and honor to Him as Lord by striving for lives of deep moral commitment. James, the half-brother of Christ, put it this way, I will show you my faith by my work. He wasn't saying that faith is of works. He was saying that faith results in good works. 
We don't get to Christ by our works, but in Christ there should be a resulting flow of good works. That through them, we well represent our Lord, our Savior before the world with lives of personal righteousness. Now, blameless means free from blemish. Hebrews 9, 14 and 1 Peter 1, 19 each use it of Christ in the same way that the Old Testament used the word blameless or without blemish of sacrificial animals. <clears throat> With this command, God is calling His church to present itself before the world as a people of the highest moral standards. Because we're taught by 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that being blameless and above reproach or among God's prerequisite qualifications for those who are in leadership or those who are aspiring to leadership, we may think that they don't apply to anyone not in leadership. That's the problem of the pastors and the deacons, I'm just here to hear the word. Problem is, we've got Colossians 3, 7 through 10. And if we read that, we would see that the same pious character, that same high moral standard, should be the unceasing goal of all believers. Here's what it says. In these two you once walked, speaking of the old man and the old patterns of sin, when you were living in them. But now that you're in Christ, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. John Stott said, Far from encouraging sin, the doctrine of election forbids it, and lays upon us instead the necessity for holiness. Cited here often enough that I think most of you are probably familiar with it by now, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 10 issues us a challenge to consider all the spiritual blessings of God examining ourselves to see if these gifts are having effect in us, ultimately warning us that if they aren't, if we aren't growing in holiness through the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of God, that we should carefully question the reality of our election. Coming now to verses 5 and 6. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now because Koine Greek didn't include punctuation. Some confusion remains about whether the words in love in verse 4 of the preceding text 
or begin verse 5. Cleverly, most Bibles, including the ESV that we use here, resolve that uncertainty by doing both. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and while in, or, while in love could end verse 4, it would read, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. It's a little grammatically awkward, but it's doable. Even though it could end verse 4, search as I might, I couldn't find a single commentary that didn't address it as an introduction to verse 5. So, if in love rightly belongs with verse 5, and I think it does, then in love, importantly, emphasizes the loving nature of predestination. In love, He predestined us. And given what we've already seen, that makes sense. It makes sense because that interpretation both reiterates and underscores what we've already seen. God's elect are those who, through Christ, are received into God's family by adoption in love. Under Roman law, an adopted son enjoyed the same status and privileges as a son natural born. Well, Christ is God's Son, natural born. Believers, however, come into our relationship with God only through adoption and grace. Yet, as Romans 8, 17 tells us, through God's love, we are made co-heirs with Jesus. That's an amazing statement. We have in God's sight the same status, the same privilege, the same love that Jesus has known with God for all eternity. But in love does more, doesn't it? It also provides, maybe undesirably for some of us, it also provides the only possible answer to a very <laughs> nagging question. Why did God choose to save me? I ask myself that perpetually. I know me. And I know that if I were God, I wouldn't choose me. Because God knows me better than I know me. I'm amazed. Titus 3.5 tells us what the answer isn't. He hasn't saved us because of works done by us in righteousness. Well, that's for sure. <laughs> At least in my case, that's for sure. And Isaiah 64.6 says further that in God's eye, any righteousness I might have, any righteousness that I might be able to lay claim to is like a filthy rag. Now, I'm not going to expound on that. 
But if you would like to understand in clarity what he means by that, feel free to look it up in Ezekiel 36, 17. It's not a pretty picture, <laughs> but it's the reality of our righteousness before the eyes of a holy God. Now within that truth, within that confession, if you will, of there being nothing within any of us, not those that the world most highly acclaims, nor those which the world would quickest, most quickly disregard, Within that truth is one reason why so many reject God's grace. Because it glorifies God and not the worth nor achievement of any man. We want to be the reason. We want to believe that all of you are jacked up. And I'm not so bad. That's not true. I can't say that of you and of me, and you can't say that of me and of you. Each of our righteousness in the sight of God is like a filthy rag. We are detestable in God's sight judged on our own righteousness. But back to the question. If there's nothing in me worth saving, and there's not, why did God save me? If there's nothing in you worth saving, and there's not, why did God save you? He saved me. And He saved you. Because He loves us. That truth is just that pure. That truth is just that simple. That truth is just that amazing. Even before the foundations of the heavens and the earth, before the first tick of time ticked, before there were angels or men, God loved you with what Ephesians 2.4 describes as a great love. God loves us because He loves us. And because God loves us, He chooses to save us. But ultimately, as Ephesians 2.7 teaches, God saved us with a great love in His great grace to put the glory of His marvelous grace on public display. Though we are saved through God's love, His ultimate purpose in our salvation is the display of His own amazing, spectacular glory. We see that all through our text today in Verses 6 and 12 and 14. To the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. To the great praise of His glory. To His glorious praise. God loves you. And He loved you to salvation. So that the world might see how glorious He is. Still, though that's true, that revelation of His glory is seen most clearly in His love. A love acted out for us in our divine adoption 
It's a glory that witnessed by men through salvation should stir our hearts to inexhaustible expressions of joy and praise for His glory. Ephesians 2.7 also teaches that no other form of God's grace more effectively or to greater degree incites men to praise than God's love demonstrated in the unequaled gift of His own Son. You're familiar with John 3.16? For God so loved the world, you and me, that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. To the praise of God's glory. So now in Christ, adopted through God's love, in the same way and to the same degree that Jesus, in all His character, in all His words, in all His work, is acceptable to the Father, so now too are we acceptable to the Father by whom we are blessed in the Beloved. Verses 7 through 10 read this. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now in saying we have, the Apostle brings us from eternity past into eternity present, calling out blessings which are ours today, and ours for the eternity of tomorrows yet to come. We are blessed with redemption and forgiveness according to the full measure of the riches of His grace. God is not stingy. God always blesses with generosity and abundance. Ours is not a small redemption. That forgiveness purchased by Jesus on the cross is given, John says in 1 John 1.19, in abundance. It is lavished upon us. When you have your children come to you, or your grandchildren come to you, or your husband or your wife come to you. You lavish your love on them. In far greater degree. With far greater purpose. God has so lavished His love on us in Christ. According to the purpose of His will. For His glorious grace. The term redemption is a term that's often used in reference to slaves. And it always implies a price paid for freedom. It means to liberate on the receipt of a ransom. In the redemption of men, the price of our ransom, the cost of our freedom from sin, death, and wrath is, of course, Christ shed blood. No greater cost. No greater price ever paid. But Jesus doesn't redeem us by His sinless life or His moral example. 
He redeems us only by that sacrificial and substitutionary death. He didn't come to show you how to live, how to be a good person and earn your salvation with God. He came to shed His blood to die for your sake that He might gift you that relationship with God. That through His life, death, and resurrection, He might grant you redemption, salvation, and justification. His life was poured out that we might have life through Him. And apart from Him, sinful man has no hope for, nor means of salvation. The verse says, in Him we have redemption. And we have redemption nowhere else. Acts 4.12 tells us, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. With the gifts of all wisdom and insight, God grants to us every spiritual discernment and every divine understanding necessary for us to see Him and the spiritual conditions of ourselves and this world as they really are. Though once hidden, God has in Christ made known to us the mystery of His will, the defeat of sin, death, Satan, and hell, as He reconciles and unites all things in heaven and things on earth in His Son, Jesus. He'll do that, the verse says, in the fullness of time. We don't know when, what day, what time that'll happen but we know it happens with the return of Christ. With the second advent of our Lord, everything is united together in Jesus. Verses 11 and 12 say, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Here Paul summarizes all that he said so far. He speaks of God's glorious plan in which we are saved by faith, becoming God's both cherished people and His heirs and recipients of a divine inheritance. It's an obscure story. And it's unlikely, but it's possible, that you've heard about Tomas Martinez. Tomas Martinez was a destitute, homeless man living on the streets of Bolivia, who, upon hearing that the police were searching for him, fled. Tomas Martinez vanished and has never been heard from again. And that's a shame. Because the reason that the police were searching for Mr. Martinez was to tell him that his ex-wife, now deceased, had, following his abandonment of her, inherited $6 million, which was now being left to him. Unwittingly, that's how many people see Jesus, too. They see Him coming for them to take away from them, to strip them of their freedom, and to place them into bondage, 
They see Jesus coming to ruin their lives. But for believers, Jesus isn't a judge. But the one through whom we gained an inheritance. An inheritance far greater than six million dollars. An inheritance far greater than anything this world has to offer. Romans 8, 28, a verse that is often misapplied, tells us that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Well, here in verses 11 and 12, we see the facets of God's eternal plan working together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We see God's redemptive plan carefully coordinated within the Godhead according to the omniscient wisdom and omnipotent will of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit culminating in His working all things together in Christ to the praise of His glory. Our final verses, 13 and 14, read thusly. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Where verse 12 earlier said, we who were the first to hope in Christ spoke to Jewish believers, you also now speaks to non-Jews, Gentile believers like, like most of us are. But it doesn't speak to them with pre-gospel division, but rather in Christ, it speaks to them in unity. God's kingdom has a place for both the Jew and the Gentile. And here with affirmation for both cultures, remember this was originally a, a single sentence, the two are knit together in Christ as one people, God's people. Galatians three twenty-eight and 29 Validated by Romans 1.16 says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. It is only in the hearing of God's truth, the Word of God, the preaching of God's glory and gospel grace, such as that which we do here each Sunday, that sinners are brought to salvation. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul says this was how the Ephesians came to be Christians. When they heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, they believed in him. They heard and embraced the word of truth as it was delivered to men by the God of truth. John 17, 17 and 2 Timothy 3, 16 bear witness to that. And how the Ephesians came to be Christians 
That's the same thing that happened for each of us. By some means or another, at some time or another, we heard the Word of God and the Holy Spirit opened our minds and our hearts to its truth. We may have heard it a thousand times before that moment and it meant nothing. It did nothing. But when the Holy Spirit takes God's Word and reveals it to sinners as truth, something dramatic happens. We are granted faith, new life, and salvation in Christ. That knowledge of God's truth led us to believing and placing our faith in Christ as the only possible means of salvation. In that moment, God's purpose in election, restoring us to fellowship with Him as adopted sons and daughters, was gloriously fulfilled. But another divine relationship was established as well. We were grafted into Christ's church, the cherished bride of Christ. Scripture, particularly Revelation, speaks metaphorically of the church as Christ's bride even commanding earthly husbands in Ephesians 5 to love their wives with the same selfless, sacrificial love Christ gives to His bride, the church. But in the latter case of Christ and the church, there is still only a betrothal. Though He is fully faithful as we are to be to Him, The marriage remains unconsummated. For now, we keep our lamps trimmed and we keep ourselves adorned and ready, waiting for the bridegroom. We anxiously await the day of our wedding when Christ returns. And we pray He soon return. But in His absence, just as a man guarantees his marital intention with an engagement ring, so has Christ presented us His promissory. He has sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is at once the one promised and the one in whom the promises are fulfilled. Nurturing in us fruits of the Spirit. He is our comforter, our counselor, and the voice of conviction. He is our indwelling God, leading us into truth and understanding. And He bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Romans 8, 16 and 17. When God seals us with His Spirit, He is declaring us His divine possession. Fully and eternally belonging only to Him. We are granted the privileges and protections belonging to those who are citizens of His divine kingdom and to those who are members of His divine family. 
Now, in closing, I want to say two things about the treasures we've come away with today. One, unspent treasures are merely trinkets. Those who have found diamonds in Murfreesboro may be content to set them on a shelf or under some glass to look at and talk about. But our treasures found in Christ are meant to be spent. The pearl of great price, salvation. The indwelling spirit, the jewel of promised inheritance or any blessing of God benefits only when it is used according to God's eternal purpose in giving it. Two, unlike the wealth of this world, we needn't fear what moth and rust destroy and what thieves can break in and steal. Romans 8, 31 through 35 and 37 through 39 offer us eternal security with these words. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who? shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. With such treasured blessings given and guarded by God, today, being a day when traditionally resolutions are made. I want to invite you to join me in making 2017 the year that we better remember our marvelous and abundant blessings in Christ. The year that we truly live our lives in the light of the glorious gifts planned and purchased for us with the righteous blood of Christ. I also want to invite you, as Scripture says, as a church, to encourage and build one another up, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making medley to the Lord with your heart, that through Christ's church, right here at Veritas, God would receive glory, honor, and unbridled praise. And for you, you here today outside of a personal relationship with Christ, living outside of God's redemptive blessings, if you'd like to know more about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you, Please take a moment. Feel free to meet with me after church. I'll be here as long as I need to. And if by chance 
I'm speaking with someone else. Feel free to grab up anyone who's smiling and ask them why you're smiling. Explaining the reason will only give them more reasons to smile. In all sincerity, if you've come here today not knowing Jesus as your Savior, please don't leave here today not knowing Jesus as your Savior. So bow your heads with me. Let's close. Heavenly Father, your word is truth. Your word is glorious. Your word is the light by which men find Christ and through Christ our salvation. Father, I pray today that you would take my humble, meager words and that you would embody them with your power. And that, Father, you would open hearts and minds today to the truth spoken here today that you would edify believers, and that you would rescue sinners. Lord God, we are so grateful for this new year. May we use it to your honor. May we use it to your glory. And in it, may we be a people of praise. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.